You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, as we spend a few moments contemplating our spiritual lives and where we stand with you, we ask and pray for your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. And may your Holy Spirit impress upon each and every one of us our condition and our need of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Elder Justin Ringstaff introduced me on Sabbath, he said that he introduced my wife and my child, Enoch. And I can't remember if he said, but maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But if he didn't, if you haven't noticed when you see my wife walking around, she is pregnant to have another baby in August. We don't know what we're having in terms of the gender because we're keeping it a surprise. Amen. My life is so planned. I know what I'm doing in like 10 months' time on this Sabbath. I need a few surprises in life. So that's one of them. I'll find out when the baby comes. Now, March of this year, my wife sent me a text message, and she said, to the effect, that's it, I'm not going to get pregnant again. She already was, but not again. And the reason why she said that was she said, every time I'm pregnant, you break a limb. I had just broken my hand at the time. I was in the hospital in British Columbia, Canada, and I'd broken one, number two, number three, number four, metacarpal on the back of my hand. I still have a big bump there because it healed with a bump. And she was like, every time I get pregnant, you break something. Because three years ago in 2018, in September of 2018, I was at our campground and it was the end of the season. The kids weren't there anymore and we were packing up all the supplies and just making sure everything was okay. And I really wanted to take the jet ski out one more time on the open sea. Now I went down to look at the sea and it was rougher than I had ever been on before. It was like, it was proper waves. Now we've done it on, on way, you know, fairly decent sized wave, but this was bigger than I'd ever done. And I looked at the waves and I thought, hmm, looks like fun, but I've never been on waves that big. And I came back to the site and talked to the other guy who's more experienced than me. And I said, hey, what do you think? And he says, well, uh, let's go and have a look. So he came down, we drove down to the sea and had a look. And he had a look and I had a look. And both of us being men that weren't willing to be open with each other, looked at each other and were like, if you do it, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, if you do it, I'll do it. Not jokingly, but yeah. You up for it? Yeah, I'm up for it. You up for it? Yeah, I'm up for it. All right, then let's do it. So we go back to the site and we get kitted out because it was later in the season. We put on our dry suits. We were properly kitted out. We, we go down to the sea and there's no one else on the sea. <laughs> so we're there and the waves <laughs> crashing down. The wind's blowing. It's pretty, pretty hectic. And then we put the jet ski in the water. He being maybe the smarter one is like, hey, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Uh, yeah, I'll go first. I'll be the man. I'll go first. So you're there on the ski, you're watching the, the waves come, you've got to kind of read the sets of the waves because they were, they were big. The one I thought it was safe, so I'll go out over the first one. Second one, and it's like, it's like crashing over. Third one, it's crashing over even more. I've got one more to go, and then I'm kind of past the break zone. And this one must have been some kind of freak wave because as I zoot, like, press the accelerator, go faster, faster, and this thing just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I revved it hard because I didn't want it to crash on me, and then whoosh, I went flying up towards heaven. Way, way, way. And then I fell off the ski, dropped in the water. The ski comes bouncing down. Thankfully, it landed upright. And now I'm in the brake zone. I've got to do something really quick because I've got this expensive piece of machinery floating in the water that's about to get smashed. So I jump back on the jet ski, plug it back in, fire it up, and zoom out to sea. And now I'm like, well, how? I've got to get back in. <laughs> play around a bit. Not play around get the courage to come back in. <laughs> Finally, like, surf the wave back in, get back into shore, and then I felt a pain on my left leg. The adrenaline works different ways. And I start to feel this pain on my left leg. One thing led to another. I had broken my left leg. I'm not sure when. The only thing I can think of, maybe when I dropped in the water, maybe I hit a rock or maybe the ski clipped my ankle or something. I don't know. But my, my, my left leg was broken, and then the pain starts to come. Spend the next six weeks in crutches, on crutches, with my pregnant, long-suffering wife helping me on and off the toilet, into the shower, out of the shower. Very inconvenient to break a leg. Overconfidence, lack of awareness of my surroundings, and really not being willing to actually say, you know, both of us were like, you know, I, I really don't want to do this. But both of us looked at each other and were like, you up for it? Yeah, I'm up for it. Are you up for it? Yeah, I'm up for it. And out we went. They say there's a reason why men live shorter than women. Pride. Overconfidence. Lack of self Awareness. Over the last five years, we've had the privilege to film, really has been a privilege, to film in some amazing places with Lineage Journey, as we've been able to travel across Europe, the Middle East, and other parts of the world. We've been able to record some stories of reformers and pioneers and episodes of history that are inspiring and also enlightening and also serve as a warning for us as well. And it's a privilege to go to some of these places and be able to capture the shots and people can watch it who maybe aren't able to go there and visualize how some of these events or the places where they took place happened. One of the places that we went in, uh, very, at the very beginning of our lineage experience, all the way back in early 2017, was this town here or this city here is called Constance. There's a German part to it, and there's a Swiss part to it, and there's a kind of, I guess, a border between the two, but it's not really a border. But, and this here is in Constance, Germany, and that building that sits there majestically on the waterfront, which is a very beautiful building today, was the place where John Huss, 
who you may have read about in the book Great Controversy, who was the Czech reformer, or Bo Bohemia as he was called at the time, he was leading the Reformation in Bohemia, or modern-day Czech Republic, and he was driving ahead in this reform, and he was called to come to Constance. Come to Constance, to the Council of Constance, which lasted, I think, for about 15 years. It was at the Council of Constance where they had an issue because they didn't have one pope, they didn't have two popes, they had three popes bit greedy. And they're trying to figure out which one of these three popes is the real pope. They had this, this, this council for 10, 15 years. But also at the council, they dealt with some heretics. It was at that council about 30 years after the death of um, John Wycliffe that they condemned him as a heretic and ordered his bones be dug up and burned. And it was at this council where John Huss was called to come by Emperor Sigismund. And he promised him, if you come to this council and answer the questions that are put before you, I promise you, you will have safe passage by the emperor. So John Huss comes. He comes to Constance safely. He arrives in Constance safely, but not long after he had got there, the emperor's good word taken away. He was arrested and he was put in prison. And he's put there in prison and he spends several months there in prison and finally he comes to his trial. And his trial, it, it, you can actually go to the place where they had his trial. It's in, in this church here. And we know from at least historical records, that he was sitting on the right-hand side in row 24. You can go and sit on the same bench he sat on. And there, he's, answered, he's called to answer for his faith. It was also there where, and this kind of comes back in Reformation history, because it was also there where he was sentenced and condemned to die, and it was also there where he stood up and looked at the emperor and said, I came here under safe protection from you. And the historical accounts record that Emperor Sigismund blushed so red as everyone looked at him. Later on, when Martin Luther was, I believe it was the Diet of Worms, and he was caught there, and some people said, arrest him and put him in jail. And the leader at the time said, no. I don't want to blush red like Sigismund did. He's there, he's condemned to die, and he was taken a short while, uh, little way away, and there's this rock, this stone that's there as the commemorating point where John Huss gave his life and was burned to ashes. They took his ashes and dumped them in the river, river Rhine, which is not too far. And there on, on, on two sides of the, the stone, there's two names, and on this side it says John Huss. He led the reform in Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic. He preached the Bible in the local language. He had taken the writings of John Wycliffe. So there's, there's a train of, of um, connection through the Reformation. He had taken the, the, the teachings and the writings of Wycliffe and started to share them, as well as teaching the Bible in the language of the people. But while he was there, before he went, he, had, he was very close friends with someone called Jerome, called Jerome of Prague. And Jerome told him, Jerome wasn't very old at the time, at the time that John Huss went, I mean, age is relative, but he was around about 35 or 36 years old. And when John Huss left Prague to go to Constance, Jerome says to him, if you get in any trouble, 
any trouble at all, don't worry, I'm going to come and help you. And he hears word that John Huss is in prison. So Jerome, without safe conduct from the emperor, without a letter saying this man can travel freely throughout the empire and no one cause him any harm, Jerome says, Huss is in trouble. I am going to go help him. So he travels to Constance. And when he gets to Constance, he realizes he's in a town where you've got thousands and thousands of cardinals and bishops and soldiers. He realizes that John Huss is stuck in a, in a castle prison. And he's there on his own. And he's no MI5 agent. He's no, like, secret service. He can't figure out a way to escape him. And he realizes that him being there is rather futile. He can't actually do anything in real terms to help John Huss. You'd probably say he went there impetuously. If he'd sat down and brought up a piece of paper and wrote down pros and cons, he probably would not have gone on that journey from Prague to Constance. But he went there, maybe in his heart as he was on the journey, he had this desire to be the hero. Huss is there. I'm going to go help him. Huss is there in prison. I'm going to go help him. I'm going to go save him. I'm going to do something when I get there to help John Huss out. And when he gets there, he realizes he can't actually do anything. And he realizes the utter futility of his attempts. And, and, and now his own life is in danger that he then makes his way back to Prague. But on his way back to Prague, you could say escaping from Constance. They're all tipped off. Hey, there was a guy here. There was a guy here. And they chase after him, and they catch him, and they bring him back to Constance. As they bring him back to Constance, he goes to the same church. He has a trial. He's put in prison. I believe Alan White records that he spends over a year in prison, in the most terrible, terrible circumstances. And, 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 and they didn't want to burn him to death. They said, we burned John Huss to death, and that didn't work out as much as we had hoped, aside from killing him. So they said, with this next one that we've got here, we don't want to burn him straight away. Let's try and torture him. Let's try and pressure him. Let's try and put him under such conditions that we get a retraction or a recantation out of him. And so they did. They put him in prison. They didn't feed him enough food, and prisons back then weren't like prisons today. And he's there in prison. He's suffering. He's in pain. He's in agony. And they bring him to the church, and they ask him to recant his faith. And he stands up there. He recants the writings of Wycliffe. He recants the teachings of John Huss. And he pledges allegiance to the Roman Catholic faith. Ellen White says, But now, weakened by illness, by the rigors of his prison house, and the torture of anxiety and suspense, separated from his friends and disheartened by the death of Huss, Jerome's fortitude what? And he consented to submit to the council. He pledged himself to adhere to the Catholic faith and accepted the action of the council in condemning the right, the doctrines of Wycliffe and Huss and accepting, however, the holy truth which they... As you look at his life, that's kind of like a, a, a very, very low point, a sad episode. And, and, and most of us today sit here and look and read that and think, how could he? How could he? 
And as we sit there and look and look at him and say, how could he? We do so with an inflated sense of our own fortitude. How could Jerome do that? How could he? How could he? After he retracted, he's taken back to prison. Because they were never happy with just one retraction. And they put him back in prison. And he goes back to prison again and spends a few more months there. And then he has to come out again and do another retraction. At his retraction, Jerome had assented to the justice of the sentence condemning Huss. He now declared his repentance and bore witness to the innocents. And so now he comes back and he has to give another retraction. And this is where you see, in a sense, the mercy uh, uh, in the situation because now he retracts his previous retraction. And he says, I knew John Huss from childhood. He was the most excellent man, just and holy. He was condemned, notwithstanding his innocence. I also, I am prepared. I am ready to die. I will not recoil before the torments that are prepared for me by my enemies and false witnesses who will one day have to render an account of their impostures before the great God whom nothing can declare. This was after he was almost refused an opportunity to speak. And he says, listen, you've held me in prison for a year. Give me a chance to speak. And he stands up there and retracts his retraction and says, I stand with us, I stand with Wycliffe, I against the Catholic Church, I stand on my convictions. And they take him to the same spot that Jerome, sorry, Huss was taken to. The sentence of condemnation was passed upon him. He was led, Ellen White says, to the same spot which Huss had yielded up his life. He went, what's the next word say? Singing. This is a man who's been a coward. This is a man who stood before the council, before his enemies, and says, I'll adhere to the Catholic faith. I will adhere to the Catholic faith. He now goes on his way singing. His countenance lights it up with joy and peace. His gaze was fixed upon Christ, and to him death had lost its terrors. When the executioner, about to kindle the pile, stepped behind him, the martyr says, come before me. Apply the fire before my face. If I had been afraid, I would not be here. Jerome was burned on this same spot. The other side of the stone says Jerome of Prague. One side says Huss. The other side says Jerome of Prague. They burned on the same spot. Here's a man who retracted his faith. But in the grace and mercy of God, he had time to consider his decision, and he retracted his retraction. His last words uttered as the flames rose about him were, Lord, almighty Father, have pity on me and pardon my sins, for you know that I have always loved your truth. His voice ceased and his lips continued to move in prayer. When the fire had done its work, the ashes of the martyr with the earth upon which they rested were gathered up and like those of Huss were thrown into the Rhine. I called the sermon today, repentant coward. If you have a Bible, turn to John. John. John chapter 13. In John 13, you know, oftentimes a preacher will stand up in front of an audience and say to the audience, who's your favorite Bible character apart from Jesus? And you do get a multiplicity of answers. People will say all types of Old Testament, New Testament characters. 
But invariably, when a preacher will stand up in front of a congregation and say, who's your favorite Bible character, church? Invariably, from my observation and my unscientific analysis, the most common name that comes up is Peter. Or which Bible character do you relate to the most? In my experience, the one that comes up most often is Peter. And in John 13, at the end of the chapter, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what's about to happen to him and where he's about to go and, 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 and so on. And the Bible says that, verse, verse 36, Simon Peter says unto him, Lord, where do you go? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot go, for you will follow me afterwards. In verse 37, and Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will do what? I will lay down my life for your sake. Here you got Peter, a young man. Maybe he's got some impetuousness. Maybe he's not thinking quite straight. But he says, Lord, I'll do anything. And you know, elsewhere in the Gospels, we also have Peter uh, saying these same things. In other words, I'll do anything, Lord. I'll follow you. I'll lay down my life for your sake. I will be a hero for you, Jesus. I know other people won't. And he actually says, these guys, I don't know about... I mean, imagine being Peter, standing there with the disciples who you've been hanging out with for three and a half years and standing and having the audacity to look at Jesus, look at the disciples and say, Lord, I, I don't know about this lot. I don't know about these guys, but me, you can rely on 100%. I'll be there for you no matter what. Jesus looks at him and says, mm-mm. You don't know what you're talking about, Peter. And he goes on to say, before the cock crows, you will what? You'll deny me three times. And as Jesus said that, Peter's just like, what is Jesus on? Is this another allegory? Is this another parable he's trying to say? There's no way I will deny Jesus. Fast forward a few hours, they're in the garden of Gethsemane and the armies come, and soldiers come to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls out his sword. And the Bible says he, uh, he cuts off a man's ear. No one tries to cut off someone's ear. Amen. He tried to cut, my opinion is, and this is my, it's not in the Bible, this is my imagination. I believe he tried to cut his head off. So he's going like this. And the man ducks. His ear gets sliced off. That's the way I might imagine it. Because I don't think anyone looks at someone and goes, you know what? I'll just take your ear off. I'm just, just teaching you a lesson. There's more where that came from. I don't think so. I believe he was going like that, as you would swing a knife or a sword. And the man like, like that, and his ear comes off. Peter was going for the jugular. He was going for the neck, in my opinion. I'll follow you, Lord. I'll defend you. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And it comes to it. And it comes to it. Peter doesn't understand the condition of his own heart. He really doesn't. Peter doesn't understand exactly who he is. Peter's not self-aware of himself, and Peter has too much pride. All issues that all of us, in some form, face today. Yesterday, we talked about wanting to be great without being, being, being concerned about being faithful. What's behind that? What's behind that desire to be great? It's pride. 
that desire to be recognized, that desire to be somebody, that desire to have a position that adds to our self-worth, that other people will look up to us and say, ah, can I hang out with you because you're important? Fast forward to John 19, if you turn there to John 19. And in John chapter 19 is when we have Peter. John 18, thank you. John 18 and verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple. And the disciple was known to the high priest and went in unto Jesus into the palace of the high priest. And Peter stood at the door without and went, then went out the other disciple, which was known to the high priest, and spake to her that kept the door and brought them in. And then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Are you not one of this man's disciples? He said, I am. Direct question. Direct answer. No ambiguity here. Are you one of his disciples? No. No, I'm not. Lord, I'll do anything. These guys will forsake you, but I'm going to be there. No, I'm not with him. No, I'm not with him. I'm not. I'm not with him. And then later on in the chapter, the Bible says, where is he? Later on in the chapter, he says, no, I'm definitely not with him. And other gospels say that he actually swears and uses profanity to prove. Definitely not with him. Because his disciples don't talk like this. And let me show you why. Boom, 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 boom. Paints the air blue. Peter, prideful. The root of all sin is pride. The sin of Satan in heaven before he fell was pride. I will ascend into the heights. I will sit on the throne. I will be like the what? Most high. I'll be like the most high. Yesterday when I preached a sermon, a few people came up to me afterwards and they said, oh, you touched a nerve there. I said, what do you mean I touched a nerve? I didn't know. I didn't know. In England, in England, Great Britain, we do our nominating committees in October because our church officers serve from January to December. I didn't know that in Michigan you do your nominating committees around about now. And I was speaking about nominating committees. I had no idea you do your nominating committees now, but a few people came up to me and said that some of the things you'd mentioned about in your sermon about nominating committees happening back home is what they're going through in their local churches right now. Someone's not chosen to be the leader. Doesn't want to do anything anymore. Why were you doing it in the first place? Why? If we'll only do something because of a title or recognition, what's the depth of our service attitude. I'll do it if people know I did it. You know, today you can find these videos on Instagram or Facebook and whatever, and they show people, and it kind of exposes the, the fakeness of life today. And it shows someone going up to a homeless person and giving them money. So the video's like this. The homeless person's there, and the guy's walking to give, give the money there. So obviously he's got somebody filming him already. The guy goes and gives money to the homeless person. And then it shows the person then, after he's given money to the homeless person, come over to the camera, turn it around and look at it. No, no, that's not good enough. Let's do that shot again. So he picks up the money and goes back and does the shot again because it's not just enough to give the money. You've got to look good giving the money. It's got to be the right angle, the right whatever. What's behind when we feel slighted? Oftentimes it's pride. What's behind when we feel offended? I mean, it could be that someone has legitimately offended us. But we're offended that we haven't been chosen for something that we want to be chosen for. It's pride. 
Peter has pride and he wants to serve God, but at the same time, Peter doesn't know his weakness. He doesn't know how frail and how weak that he is. He thinks he's better than he really is. He's got no self-awareness. He talks big, but the root of it's pride. Ellen White says, the most hopeless, the most incurable of all sins is what? And self-sufficiency. This sin stands in the way of all advancement, all growth in grace. It has caused the ruin of how many? Thousands and thousands of souls. Pride. Pride. This sin has ruined thousands upon thousands upon thousands. A man may be a great sinner, but if he realizes he has sinned against God, if he repents and confesses his sin and strives to make restitution for his past, he shall receive what? Forgiveness. He that comes to me, I will know why is cast out, which is why you go to John chapter 21, and Jesus here mercifully, after his, after his resurrection, before his ascension, on the shores of Lake Galilee, Jesus assembles his disciples together after they're fishing uh, in the sea and they don't catch anything. Jesus stands on the shore and says, cast your nets on the other side. And when they cast their nets on the other side, their nets become full. And Peter's like, that's Jesus. And he jumps in the water and swims to sea. And as he gets there to the shore, Jesus has got a pile of coals and they're standing around and in front of everybody, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than all of these? Do you love me more than all of these? Because previously you said you loved me and you'd follow me more than all of these. Peter, do you love me more than everybody else? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus comes again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. And the third time he asks him, and Jesus actually changes the Greek word when he asks him, because the, the first two times he asks him, he uses a certain Greek word that, that Peter doesn't have the capacity to love Jesus in that sense. And the third time he asks him, he changes the Greek word, and, and Peter responds with that same word. He says, Lord, you know that I only love you that way. You know I love you, Lord, and that's the best I can do. And I love you that way. And Jesus says, feed. Feed my sheep. Pride. Pride. Another episode or story of history that we've covered in lineage that I find fascinating is a story of this man and his wives. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. I don't know if you ever learned that little rhyme, but it's to describe Henry VIII's six wives. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. He's married to the first one. Her name is Catherine of Aragon, and he doesn't want to stay married to her. So he asks the Pope, can I have a divorce, an annulment? The Pope says no, partly because no divorce, also partly because there's some relationship between the wife and other people, and he says no. And so the king says, all right then, well, if I can't divorce in this church, I'll just start my own church. Necessity is the mother of invention, they say. So he starts his own church, Church of England, and marries Anne Boylin. His daughter from Catherine was called Mary. She would later go on to become Queen of England and be called Bloody Queen Mary, by nickname. Anne Boylin would have a child whose name was Elizabeth, who would go on to be 
Queen Elizabeth I of England. And then one, I think it's the third or the fourth wife, would have a son whose name was Edward. And in the British royal line of whatever, boys come before girls even if they're younger. Now, in order to get his divorce from the first wife, the king needed an archbishop who would authorize it. Here's an interesting thing that happened. In Cambridge University, you had a professor there, professor, teacher, who's in Cambridge, and they're having a conversation at the dinner table, and he's just saying, you know what, I think what the king should do, he should talk to all the universities in Europe and get the opinion of the leading theologians across Europe and then make his decision. That was just a conversation they had. The king heard about this little table talk. He thought, oh, that guy sounds a pretty smart guy. He makes him archbishop. He goes from being a professor at university, not to being a bishop, but to being archbishop of Canterbury. The king divorces his first wife, and the child of the divorce, Mary, blames that archbishop for making her ostracized, is the kind word, from the royal family. So her whole life, teenage years, she grows up, and who does she blame? That archbishop, because why? He got my mom divorced. You can imagine the hatred or the bitterness that's there. That archbishop was this man here, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, born in 1489, is that, and dies in 1556. You can go to the village today. It's actually just about eight miles from my house, and there you have Cranmer House. Cranmer House. There he was born, and there he was raised. But after King Henry VIII died, the British Josiah, Edward VI, rules the throne. He's nine years old when he becomes king because they would rather have a nine-year-old boy than the woman who was second or third in line. So he rules from the age of nine to only around the age of 15 or 16. Young boy. How can you rule a country at nine? You see the nine-year-olds riding around campus. You know the nine-year-olds in your caravans. Rule of England, nine years old. He dies. And when he dies, Mary, no, actually when he dies, then they put Lady Jane Grey there. You've probably heard of her name, Lady Jane Grey. She was the nine-day queen. She wasn't part of the royal line. She was a cousin of the royal line, but they put her in because she was Protestant, but she didn't last long. She lasted nine days. They chopped her head off, and then Mary comes to the throne, who was, in a sense, the rightful heir. Mary comes into the throne, and she was the first queen of England. There's been no queen of England before that. She was Catholic, even though her father was Protestant. She's nicknamed Bloody Mary for the large number of Protestant leaders that she killed, and she tried but failed to return England to Protestantism. And during her time, she executed and killed many leading Protestant um, bishops, or not bishops, or pastors, or whatever you want to call them. And in particular, they got this one guy, Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner. She doesn't like him. She goes straight after him, get Thomas Cramner. Then there's another guy called Hugh Latimer, and there's another guy called Nicholas Ridley. One was the Archbishop of London, one was a prominent preacher, one was Archbishop of Canterbury, and they assembled them in Oxford. None of them came from Oxford, but they assembled them there in Oxford. And the issue, you know, as Adventists, we have this understanding, this prophetic or theological 
understanding of the eschatological end-time events. And we believe that Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 7, the seal of God, the mark of the beast, is going to be the end-time issue that we are called to demonstrate our fidelity to Jesus on. Amen? That wasn't the issue back then. It wasn't about the fourth commandment. It wasn't about the Sabbath or, or whatever else. It wasn't about those issues back then. The issue back then was this, communion. That was the issue. They lost their lives over communion. Which some of you and I maybe sometimes skip church because we don't like to get our feet wet. People lost their lives over communion. It was a life and death issue. The belief at the time, Catholics, was transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine becomes the, bread, the, body and the body and blood of Jesus. Literally, you're eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. Literally. Calvin comes along, he's got a different view of receptionism. Lutheranism comes along with consubstantiation. If you can figure what that is, then please let me, let me know. And then Zwingli comes along, and his view was memorialism, which is really what we have today. That the bread is a symbol of the body, and, the, and the, 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 the grape juice is a symbol of the blood of Jesus. It's just a symbol and nothing else. And Zwingli comes along with that view. And as Adventists, we're kind of from that train of thought. And Ridley, Latimer, and Cramner were from the same school of thought as Zwingli. And they said, no, the bread is a symbol. Where is the Lord? He's in heaven. Whence he went at the resurrection. The change of communion is in the heart of the believer, not in the bread. Amen? This is him defending his theological belief before the trial. It's not in the, the thing. The Oxford Martyrs of 1555 and 1556, Ridley, Latimer, and Cramer, and the issue was transubstantiation, is that as they're brought to trial, initially they burned Ridley and Latimer first. It's a powerful story as they're burning to death. One of them says, we shall this day light a candle in England by God's grace as shall never be put out. But Cramner was not burned with them. Cramner was made to stand at the top of the building overlooking the street and watch his two colleagues burn. Because Queen Mary, she had it in for him. She had it in for him because he caused her mother to be divorced. So she has it in for him. She makes him watch, and then she leaves him in prison for several months, during which time Cranma, Cranma retracts his faith. He's there in the prison. He retracts. He says, okay, I recant. I'll be a good Catholic. The blood is in the wine, and the bread is the body of Jesus. I believe it. But after he retracts, she leaves him in prison. Canon law stipulated that a recanting heretic had to be reprieved, but there's personal issues here, you can understand. And even though he recants, she leaves him in prison, and, and she said, his iniquity and obstinacy is so great against God and your grace that your clemency and mercy could have no place in him. She says, no, I don't care if he's recanted, he's staying there. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he what? Some of us look at these guys like Jerome and Cramner and think, I would never do that. 
I'm ready. I'm ready for the end times. I'm ready to go before trial. I'm ready to stand before U.S. Congress. I'm ready. I'm ready. He recants and they bring him to this church. Hey, you can go to this church in England. It's a lovely place to visit. I've been there a few times when they're playing the organ and it's quite a magnificent thing to behold, the organ being played in St. Mary's Church. And it's in this church we know the exact spot where Cramner was brought the second time. On the left side of the picture, one, two, three pillars up. The pillar to the left of the red thing in the middle. And we know that because I don't know why they cut into the pillar a wedge. See there? They cut into the pillar a wedge so they could put a platform on top. Now, I don't know why they couldn't have just built a platform with four legs. But either way, they cut into the pillar a wedge to put the platform on. They didn't want him to stand as high as the pulpit because that would be too much honor. They didn't want him on the ground because they wanted people to see. So they put a platform there that's about, it's about one meter high and they had him stand there. And it was while he's standing there on this pillar, you can see the, another picture there of the wedge cut into the pillar. While he's standing there on the thing, he has to give a further recantation of his faith. And he stands up there, and in summary of all the flowery English that he spoke, he essentially said, I recant my recantation. I said, okay, you will go to the flames too. They led him to this spot here which is where they found in 1842 a huge, massive pile of ash underneath the, the surface of the road. And they knew that they had been burned on this street, but they didn't know the exact spot. And as they found this huge, like, three or four by four meter square pile of ash, they said, well, that's got to be the spot where they burned the martyrs a few hundred years ago. And they put this cross there on the ground. As John, sorry, as Thomas Cramner went to the flames. He went there. You know, you've probably read those, heard a quote that says something like, not all men are born heroes, but some men become one. He wasn't born a hero per se, and he had serious gaps or lapses in his faith, but here at the end of his life, he, he rediscovers his courage and his faith in God, and as he's walking to the flames, John Fox reported that as he stood there, he did something that is quite noble. He stood there, and as the flames had been lit, he stood there and held his hand into the flames. He said, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy, it was the hand that assigned the recantation. He said, this unworthy right hand, it will first be burned. And he stood there with his hand in the flames while his right hand was burning until it's completely burned. And then he steps into the flames. Thomas Cranmer, you'll see the year, 1556 as opposed to 1555. The Bible says a righteous man falls how many times? But then he does what? Rises. The reason why a lot of us fall is pride comes before our fall. But I'm glad we serve a merciful God. That though we may like to put up an air of how good or how strong or how or whatever we are, the reality is in the deepness of our hearts and the recesses of our minds, more of us can relate to Jerome or Cranmer or Peter than we like to admit. And I believe their stories are put there in, in sacred history to let us know that not everybody, not everyone was unflinching in the face of the fire. 
Not everyone just took it on the chin, so to speak. There were people that faltered, but their stories are there in sacred history to let us know that, yes, they did falter or fall. They had pride or impetuousness or whatever you want to call it that got before them or just weakness in the, in the heat of the moment. But they, they, they regathered some strength and they came back and they asked God for that strength and they died with courage. Today, many stand where Peter stood in self-confidence. He declared that he would not deny his Lord. And because of their self-sufficiency, they fall an easy prey to Satan's devices. Those who realize their weakness trust in a power higher than self. And while they look to who? Satan has what? No power against them. Our greatest enemy is ourself. Our greatest enemy is our pride and self-sufficiency. But if we look to God, Satan has no power against us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, as we look into the, the recesses of our heart, Lord, there's not one of us in here who does not struggle with an inflated sense of our own self-worth, with an inflated sense of our own abilities, and with pride and self-sufficiency. Lord, may we fall on the rock and be broken. May we realize our utter weakness. Lord, we take courage from the stories of history in the Bible and our own sacred church history that remind us that you are a merciful and a gracious and a long-suffering God, willing to restore all of us when we fall. And Lord, I pray that we may see our weakness and may see our only source of strength is in you. Take away, Lord, that pride that we just love to cling on to so much and replace it, Lord, with a godlike humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.